Welcome to Fundamentals of Canadian Law. I'm Matt Shepard, and I'm currently innocent because nobody's proven me guilty in a court of law. But why is that so important? Queen's Law professor Lisa Kerr joins me from New York via Skype to talk about why the presumption of innocence is the bedrock of our legal system and share a few surprising facts about the history of innocence in court. Lisa is also the creator of the Criminal Law Module for Law 201701 in the Queen's Certificate in Law, the only online program of its kind offered by a law faculty in Canada. You can find out more at takelaw.ca. Uh, so when I was taking Law 201, I started the course and I had kind of this abstracted idea of the presumption of innocence. But what what is it in legal theory? What What is the presumption of innocence? Right. So, you know, this idea of you're innocent until proven guilty. This is probably one of the most well-known phrases in modern criminal law. We kind of all get that that's part of our system. But what does it mean practically? It's really connected to the idea of the burden of proof and the idea that the burden of proof is on the state in a criminal prosecution. So it means that before anyone can be found guilty of a crime, the crown prosecutor, as we call them in Canada, the prosecutor, uh, has to prove that all of the elements of the offense, um, that the accused committed them um, beyond a reasonable doubt. And if there is a reasonable doubt about any of the elements of the offense, and the elements include you know, the mental element, what had to be in the state of the mind of the accused person, and the act element, what is it that they needed to do wrong in order to constitute a crime, we have to have um, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt with respect to each of those elements. So, um, you know, what it means is that you're entitled to the presumption that you're innocent with respect to all of the elements of the offense at the outside of a criminal trial. So is this something that's actually enshrined somewhere? Is it in the Canadian constitution or the, the charter rights and freedoms? So in Canada, it is a principle that's protected in our charter. And of course, we got our charter in 1982. And section 11D says any person charged with an offense is to be presumed innocent until proven guilty according to law. Uh, it's interesting in the United States, um, the, you know, the phrase reasonable doubt doesn't actually appear anywhere in the Constitution. But you did see in 1970 that the court read the standard into constitutional law. This was sort of during a period of of the US Supreme Court expanding the rights of criminal defendants. Um, it, and it's an important principle, as I say, it sets up a real burden for the state. Um, you know, it's it's no easy job for the prosecutor to establish that every element of the offense has, you know, that it's been committed beyond a reasonable doubt. So it does set up a significant burden on the part of the state. But why do we need to set up such a big burden? I mean, why why do we have to have all of this in place? Why are we imposing so much on the state in terms of letting them prosecute a crime? You know, those are the key questions here. And, and the important background theory here is about the commitment in modern societies like ours to principles of individual liberty and freedom from state interference. So incarceration and criminal punishment is an extraordinary interference with our freedom, right? So it has to be justified. Um, you know, the state has to be justified in incarcerating or punishing us according to a really high standard. Um, you know, and we don't want to make mistakes in our system, right? We want to. There's a there's a there's a saying in our system that we would rather let a few guilty go than incarcerate the innocent. Um, so 
another key idea here in terms of the background theory is that individuals are really vulnerable when they're facing a criminal prosecution. And, and it's partly because the state really has all the power and resources, right? They have the police to investigate. They have crown prosecutors to gather evidence and make arguments. And the individual really has at most maybe a single lawyer um, who may or may not be paid for by the state, depending you know, how poor they are and whether they qualify for legal aid. So there's this real asymmetry between the criminal defendant and this entire state apparatus that he or she is, is facing in a criminal trial. And so that's another part of why the accused gets the benefit of a presumption of innocence and this high standard of proof of reasonable doubt. So, I mean, if you look at kind of the chessboard of someone who has been accused of a crime, someone who's on trial, basically it's sort of one person on one side. On the other side, you've got the entire apparatus of state that it wants to make them guilty. Yeah, and even if you just picture a courtroom in your in your mind's eye, um, you know, there's police officers there to testify, um, and there's crown prosecutors there arguing the case, adducing evidence, you know, maybe calling experts, all kinds of witnesses. Um, there's the judge sitting there. There's the court staff. There's the sheriff. Every person in that courtroom is part of the state apparatus, and and that includes the judge, of course, even though you know judges are committed to independence and neutrality, but they too are are actors for the state. And so you can you can now start to see that this individual defendant with his or her defense counsel it is really kind of going in there, um, and it's a David and Goliath situation. And I I never really thought about kind of other than sort of it's an abstract principle. It's just kind of a, a moral thing to have presumption of innocence. So I never really thought about this whole idea of the apparatus of state versus sort of the individual in these trials. But what happens when someone is there who does have tremendous resources to people who are, for instance, incredibly rich or really well connected? Do they kind of warp that system a bit in terms of they're not the people that it was sort of designed for? Well, it's an important question, and, you know, like the criminal justice system is formally equal. You know, there's no there's no specific rules we can point to and say, um, you know, the the rich or the the powerful get better treatment. Um, you know, but it's it's in the administration um, and it's in the deployment of resources where there can be inequality in outcomes because of the resources and advantages. Um, that certain defendants do come into criminal trials with. And it may be partly, you know, that it may be partly that they're able to hire the best lawyers. They don't need to hire lawyers on legal aid tickets. Um, they may hire multiple lawyers. They might be able to have investigators working their, their case. And they may also be, you know, very um, articulate and clear about the legal system and how it works, and they can give instructions to counsel and really, and really sort of um, push for their interests to be protected. You know, they may also be able to get bail. Um, there's all kinds of evidence that when you're held in pretrial confinement and bail is denied, that you have real difficulties um, in running your trial and instructing counsel and meeting with the people you need to meet with and so on. And, and there's lots of uh, issues having to do with wealth inequality that goes to the, the granting and denial of bail. So yeah, there are some inequalities that flow in our system, although certainly it's true that this rule of presumption of innocence is meant to apply to the rich and poor alike. Um, I don't know how much this applies to Canada. I think it applies to a degree. But there's there's a saying that the great American death penalty lawyer Brian Stevenson often says, he says that in the United States anyways, you're better off if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. 
And I think Mr. Stevenson is really speaking to those those dynamics on the ground where it's it's not about some formal rule, but it's about, you know, the reality of how how things play out. But in the abstract, I can definitely see how it, it feels like a very fundamental premise of law that you should be presumed to be innocent. So, I mean, this has been around since time immemorial, right? Like this is a concept that's as old as courtrooms and as old as justice. I mean, we often talk that way, right? You can read these these cases that talk about the presumption of innocence being, you know, it's referred to as the golden thread of the English common law. Um, you know, there's a case called Wilmington that we teach in, in first year criminal law. It's decided in 1935, an English case that refers to this, you know, high-minded ancient principle of, of uh, presumption of innocence. But it's actually a little bit of a different story if you look to the to the deeper historical record. Uh, there's a great book on this topic called The Origins of Reasonable Doubt, and it's by um, the Yale legal historian uh, James Whitman. And Whitman looks at uh, the rise of the jury trial in the 17th and 18th century in England. Um, and this is when we first start, you know, handing over to, to juries the decision of guilt and innocence. And um, what Whitman uncovers is that this reasonable doubt rule it really was not originally designed um, to serve the purpose um, it serves today. Um, originally, it was not designed as a protection to the accused. Instead, it was designed to protect the souls of the jurors against damnation. So the idea was that if you convicted an innocent defendant, that was regarded in the, in the Christian tradition um, that was in play at the time as a potential mortal sin. Um, so the purpose of reasonable doubt was really to sort of um, calm jurors to um, ameliorate the risks of this, you know, very scary at the time possibility that they would be eternally damned if they made uh, a wrong decision. Um, so it was meant to reassure jurors that they could convict the defendant without risking their own salvation, so long as their doubts about guilt were not reasonable. Um, so... Whitman then goes and takes this history forward and he says, you know, there are a lot of actual contradictions in today's law. You know, there's reverse onuses. Um, there's times when prosecutors don't have to prove everything. There's lots of exceptions to this rule. The law is kind of complicated in this area. And what Whitman says is that this really explains a lot about why law in this area is a bit of a mess and is contradictory um, in both the U.S. and Canada today. And it's because it has a history Right, a lineage, a sort of embedded um, purpose that's different than the story that we tell about it today. Wow, I had no idea that the presumption of in, sort of a religious bet hedging against juries going to hell. Right, and it had nothing to do with how much we value liberty and how individuals have to be protected from state interference. No, it was a deeply religious notion um, and it was developed as a way to, pro, you know, to calm um, the conscience of the juror of the 17th or 18th century juror. And so it's fascinating. And that's, I mean, I love legal history for this purpose. You, you, we often tell these sort of formal, high-minded stories about legal rules and um, where they come from, especially within um, judgments within judicial opinions. And then you look at the record and you can see actually, you know, societies that had very different worries and very different social contexts, you know, they, they understood things quite differently. And it's important to, to sort of dig that history out and, and, and make sure that you're 
sort of aware of how uh, principle may have been developed in a in a different context than the one we have today. So it, it can sometimes lead to some contradictions in the way the law actually works. Thanks to Professor Lisa Kerr. If you're interested in criminal law, you may want to look into Law 201-701, Introduction to Canadian Law, at takelaw.ca. Fundamentals of Canadian Law is recorded at Queen's University, situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Our theme music is by Megan Hamilton, also a staff member here at Queen's Law, and you can find out more about her music at meganhamiltonmusic.wordpress.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. We'd appreciate it. Thanks for listening.